So welcome to The Bailey. Uh, this is the show where we, uh, without any prompting whatsoever, discuss the legalization of child pornography. I'm your host, Yassine Masood. I'm joined today by Let's Stay Civilized, Muppet Blast, and 93. I'm Muppet Blast. Bonjour. Bonsoir. I'm Let's Stay Civilized. Hello. I'm 93. And the topics today are a variety of uh, issues. Uh, we're going to be discussing uh, Jordan Peterson's views on uh, Disney movies and maybe how the message over time has been corrupted. We're also going to discuss modern art and architecture and how shady it is, according to Nathan Robinson of uh, Current Affairs. We're going to dive into some really wonky shit known as harbinger taxes for land, primarily uh, most recently uh, advocated by uh, Robin Hansen. So we can start with modern... My notion here is that I don't think that architecture... I wouldn't say art, but architecture has been that important until recently as far as having to do with political philosophy and the kind of hot button culture war type issues, even though it seems like a better candidate for, say, uh, knitting or video games or something. Right. Because it's just so uh, immortal. But it feels like it's come up more recently and it hasn't always been around. Anyone else get that feeling or what? So to provide some uh, context, uh, one of the articles that we're going to be referencing to has been published in Current Affairs, uh, October 31st, 2017. And it's written by Brianna Rennix and Nathan Robinson. I'm, I'm generally a big fan of Nathan Robinson as a writer, but I also recognize that he operates within a constraint where he constantly has to be creating content for his magazine. So I, on one sense, I can see why this particular issue can be seen as trivial and frivolous. Nevertheless, I think he raises some interesting points, but I have a severe disagreement about the, the source of it. He complains endlessly about how shitty more recent buildings are and has kind of a nostalgia for uh, older architecture and how it has taken a dive for a variety of reasons. Namely, he cites... I guess how antagonistic uh, some architects are in designing their buildings. Some of them are outright hostile uh, towards whoever intends to be using their buildings, how they don't want it to be greetable to whoever uses it or lives there or works there. It's seen almost as a masturbatory exercise in creating the most ridiculous thing possible. And if anyone complains about how un friendly or uncomfortable it is, the response is, well, you just are not sophisticated enough to, to understand it. So there's a lot of things going on. Yeah. Uh, you were talking about how it recently came up. For me, it's almost the opposite in that, in that conservatives complaining about how modern architecture and modern art are all horrible and a proof of how all culture has lost its sense is like at least like 50 years old or something, or actually like, yeah, even... Even Nazi Germany had that thing. But uh, for me, it's like a tale as old as time always, uh, almost. So let's say civilized. You live in France. Yes. I don't know which city specifically, but a lot of the, exercise, uh, a lot of the examples that Nathan Robinson has cited uh, are directly related to Paris. So Nathan Robinson mentions uh, the Tour Montparnasse, uh, which is in Paris, that stands in direct contrast to the rest of the Par Parisian uh, landscape. And the... Uh, do you have any particular response, uh, let's say, civilized? Well, it's a bit of an eyesore, but I don't complain too much because uh, in general, Paris is a super nice looking city. Interestingly, I believe that the complaints that people have now about modern architecture, for example, they used to have about the Eiffel Tower, that was considered a modernist eyesore back, eyesore back in the days, though eventually they grew up to it. I'm not sure people will get used to Tour Montparnasse because it is a bit ugly, but it, it's okay-ish. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, let's say civilized, but wasn't the, the Eiffel Tower meant to be temporary? Yeah, originally the Parisians hated it. 
And then I sort of became a symbol of Paris and they decided to stick with it for a bit and it, it grew on them. It's funny, it just now occurs to me that Eiffel is like, you know, it's a real Eiffel. Muppet Blast, are you making, are you making a pun? Yes, I was. Okay, nice try. We banned this man. <laughs> oh, McMuster, welcome. But when Nathan Robinson says he has a problem with architecture, um, is he is he talking about, or he says it's, you know, architecture has kind of lost its luster or it's not sensible or, or scrutable, as you said. Is he talking about more ancient or medieval, late medieval architecture, or is, from his point of view, modernist, you know, something from 1950 or 60? Basically, everything pre-war is good in his book. He talks about the Art Deco and, and arts and crafts movements favorably. Yeah, his focus is primarily around the 20th century. And in case anyone doesn't know, Nathan Robinson is a diehard socialist, and he manages to... He has a bunch of examples that I completely agree are horrible to look at, but he, I think, goes into great contortions to try to pin the blame on capitalism, of course, inevitably. Yeah, yeah, the end of the article was great. Yeah, I think the way that he attempts to blame capitalism is inadvertently a sort of ends up making socialism look very bad because what he kind of has two complaints. One of the complaints is that architects are full of insane ideas and they make these buildings that look like they were designed by Martians and no one should like those. And the second complaint is that something, something capitalism, people have lost the sense of beauty and now all the buildings are boring cubes. So he's a socialist, but he's not a fan of, of, of brutalism and the Eastern Soviet or Eastern European look. He's not a fan of that, but he's a socialist. So the idea behind that second complaint is that people too, care too much about the cost efficiency of the buildings. And the reason hospitals look like boring cubes instead of like French palaces is that we don't want to spend money on all these ornate bits of ornaments that don't do anything and he's right and his criticism is basically this is too cost efficient we need socialism to solve that problem which apparently he considers an argument in favor of socialism i want to focus on the example that you cited about hospitals so i'm I'm just when i was reading this i was kind of the on the edge of my seat waiting for him to you know drop the argument that I was waiting for. And essentially, the people that were in hospitals 100 years ago were not run-of-the-mill citizens. It was generally a high-class affair, uh, relegated only to the very rich. So he's essentially complaining that this building intended for very rich patrons is beautiful. Why can't we have more of that? Which I I guess it's a fair argument, but it, it was puzzling to me that he doesn't point out the reason why those buildings that were intended for very, very rich families are so ornate and why we don't see that more often. Well, as a bit of a counterpoint to that, it seems that like the most beautiful buildings around tend to be churches, which are kind of aimed for everybody. Like uh, I'm used to in, in France, you just walk around any any small town or something, you'll find a beautiful church. And that would be the place where the whole neighborhood would go in. Uh, I mean, and of course, there was a bit of the pissing contest between each town trying to make a nicer... That's, that's a fair response, but I don't think they're perfectly analogous because a church is ostensibly meant to be a celebration of the divine. So the the demographic, the intended audience isn't necessarily everyone, but it's also meant to be a celebration of which whichever God is omnipresent uh, watching over that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, good point. He also points to uh, old train stations. I think it was uh, St. Penn Station or something like that. And a, a lot of those were beautiful public fora. 
Yeah, I, I think that was the first time I got to see pictures of Penn Station, and it's fucking breathtaking. <laughs> I wish I, w- I, w- I was able to see it. Something like Penn Station wasn't that also, you know, or or in, you know, structures like that. They were the the doing of like a, you know two or three rich, you know, philanthropists, right? So it kind of reflected their taste. Um, is there a way to get to that, but without the capitalist part or something? Is maybe Nathan Robinson wants that? That's that's I think one of the main things that I found confusing about the article. So he he points to a lot of pre-war buildings, and uh, if anyone wants to claim that it's because that capitalism is what's making buildings ugly, then why point to what is known as one of the most capitalistic? Uh, eras of the United States where you have railroad barons kind of building whatever the fuck they want. You have a lot of buildings essentially becoming vanity projects for industrial patrons or industrial uh, barons. Isn't it even called the Gilded Age? Yes. So, I mean, the architecture from there, I think pretty much everyone, maybe it was gaudy at the time, but like if if you look at turn of the century mansions or buildings or uh, apartment buildings or libraries or opera houses or whatever from that age, I'm pretty sure Nathan Robinson is going to be like, yeah, this, this, this shit is good. But, but I I don't know how he tries to reconcile that with uh, the source of it. Well, here, I'll, I'll make a good socialist case for it. Go ahead. It is just as much a testament to the workers who built it as it is to the sensibilities of the people who had it built. I used to work at a house museum. It was a building built in the 1910s by a Minnesota timber and iron baron. And McMuster, you're in the construction industry, right? I am, yes. So I'm going to weigh in a little bit on how his characterization of how everything being built now is terrible is a little bit inaccurate. Uh, But now talking about like we, in our tours of this place, we talked just about as much about the amount of effort that went into creating the ornamentation that they selected for their house. uh, Just as much as the people who live there. Like the arts and crafts movement. I'm not sure if you've ever seen an arts and crafts era building, but the level of detail and ornamentation is insane. It's not unlike what you would see in a in a Gothic cathedral or one of the Persian mosques he mentioned in shows photos. And that was all relatively modern, built in 1910 and still following this tradition. And you bring people in there, whether it's students who are coming in and becoming tour guides uh, or just regular lay people in, and they're they're flabbergasted because if you go into like a high class hotel or anything like that now, things are relatively sparse on detail. Things are all very high quality, very high, very nice materials, but you don't see the amount of effort put into a simple light fixture as you do there. All hand wrought iron and silver and gold. Unless you're going to some very patchy place like uh, Trump's mansion. I'm not sure if you've seen photos like that. But the, it's very much minimum, minimalism is currently in vogue, and it blows people away when they actually walk into one of these older homes. I'll defer to your expertise in this area, but I, I would also imagine that building codes have gotten more and more strict. Uh, I assume that part of the goal is essentially limiting liability, making sure that things are done to a uniform standard, built, constructed and built and designed to a uniform standard to minimize the potential for deficiencies, negligence, or whatever else could go wrong. And so the narrow band of what you're able to do 
is is pretty limited. So one one thing I can I keep coming across is how ceiling heights, floor heights are essentially fixed at eight feet for modern buildings, and it's very difficult and therefore very expensive to stray from that. Is that correct, McMuster? Uh, you can work around that. Yet it's not that's not a hard and fast rule. But if you if you work around it, is it does it just blow up in expense? It can, but that's more on the architect side of things. We're the implementation side of things. To us, it doesn't make much of a difference. It's not us who get sued if that happens. Either way, either way, what I'm talking about more is the the facade, the stuff on the outside of the structure. The structure itself is neat and interesting from an engineering perspective, but it's relatively immaterial to the overall aesthetic. Minimum ceiling height must be eight feet. That- and Muppet Blast, that generally um, houses built in the United States uh, tend to coalesce around the almost exactly eight feet between floor and ceiling. I was going to say, if there was a regulation uh, mandating a minimum or uh, a no no shorter than eight feet, that actually kind of makes sense. It, it could be in some jurisdictions, but primarily it's um, uh, probably a result of uh, further consolidation. It's just much easier when uh, you're working with building materials for them to be streamlined and to follow a standardized measurement for how tall they are. And once you deviate from that, it could get expensive. We see buildings with like really wild designs. Um, is it possible they've somehow what purchased a, a greater amount of insurance or somehow some, some way of getting around some certain restrictions. Um, I only ever see buildings like that in places where real estate is incredibly valuable. So whenever, whenever there are restrictions, uh, you can get around them. It, it just, it just becomes a matter of expense and time and whether it's worthwhile. When he's talking about the lava texture, there's not much standardization going on. What do you mean by that? Well, those are very non-uniform buildings and are going to require very special uh, building materials. That's that's all custom work. There's nothing uh, slapdash and uh, uniform about those. In addition to building codes, I think one factor that's also pretty important is just light. In that now we have the technology that to make super broad windows that take out a much larger part of the width. We don't have to have like thick pillars and stuff. And this makes much nicer insides with a lot more sunlight, which probably has a pretty significant influence on the kind of architecture you get. No, that seems plausible. I'm not an architect, so I wouldn't know. His indictment against skyscrapers at the end there, everything over eight, everything over four stories. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of ridiculous. But I, I'm, I'm cutting that out of the rest of the article in order to avoid having to deal with that. So, so one of the articles that I was uh, thinking about when I was reading uh, Nathan Robinson's piece, also Br- Brianna Renix, not to overshadow her, is uh, something published in City Commentary titled My Illegal Neighborhood by Joe Courtright. And this is probably my favorite commentary on zoning laws in the United States ever, because uh, he describes the neighborhood that he lives in in Northwest Portland, Oregon, and he describes this kind of eclectic mix of uh, uses uh, around his neighborhood. So there's a a direct mailing factory across the street from him, a school, uh, a restaurant, and a variety of uh, home-based businesses. And he goes point by point through all these uh, establishments and describes how if they were attempted to be built in the present day, they would be effectively barred from from doing so. So most cities in the United States follow uh, what is known as the Euclidean zoning uh, system. This is familiar to anyone that has played SimCity. Essentially, every type of building is segregated based on use. So you have residential areas, you have commercial areas, you have industrial areas, agricultural areas, etc. The name for Euclidean is from a Supreme Court case, Euclid, uh, Ohio, uh, where it was first 
affirmed as legal and where the Supreme Court spends a lot of time kind of shit talking apartments and how they're a blight and how it's perfectly legal for a city to try to ban them. There's a there's a whole kind of further interesting discussion that you can get into how zoning throughout the middle of the 20th century was essentially a replacement for racial segregation covenant where once that was struck as struck down as unconstitutional people essentially sh- shifted to minimum lot sizes minimum square footage as a form to be if not explicitly racially segregated it was the closest that you can get as a proxy for class segregation so essentially you can build whatever home you wanted as long as it was this expensive and that was seen as a good enough way to keep out the riffraff from certain neighborhoods so the article that he goes through he describes about he describes kind of how this has shifted so there's all these buildings that have been there from the 20th century and this zoning in the United States didn't really take hold until the 1930s and 1940s before that you essentially could build anything you wanted wherever you wanted there wasn't really any height limit uh the only constraint on height was essentially how much capital you could raise and how much resources you can uh direct towards uh, any particular endeavor. And so uh, if, if you're talking about a time when that was closest to development capitalism, it would be the early 20th century in the United States, which is exactly what Nathan Robinson cites as the most beautiful buildings to ever be built were around from this time. And that struck me as a, as a bizarre omission uh, to, to not really get into. There was a pretty interesting article also on uh, zoning that was comparing the US system to the ch- to the Japanese zoning system. I think I know what you're talking about how zone um and to anyone that's not familiar J- Japan has a national uh zoning system and I believe it's split up into 12 zones and the way they work it's almost like a stacked pyramid where the the lowest zoning is the most ex- uh, exclusive in the sense that you can only have houses. And the next up is you can have houses and schools and further up is houses, schools, and small commercial uh, uh, enterprises. And the idea is that at every step of the way, you always include whatever's left behind. So essentially, the baseline is you can build houses anywhere you wanted. The only things that are restricted are essentially what are known as more disruptive enterprises. So the louder it is, the less likely it is to be included. And then they have a different designation for heavy industrial uh, work, which kind of requires its own uh, its own consideration. If I had to pick uh, my favorite zoning system, it would probably be Japan's, uh, at least the way it's described uh, in that article. I've heard that in Tokyo, there's construction going pretty much you know all the time, and and people have contrasted that with like you know San Francisco or someplace. Um, but you know they'll say the downside is that there's construction going on all the time. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, you're, you're freer to do what you want with your home, but it's just, there is a quality of life issue going on. You know, if, if you want construction going on all the time, you should go to China. That place is really impressive in terms of like, you, you visit the same place with two years interval and they just rebuilt everything. And they're building like 30 story buildings all over the place. Japanese homes are essentially built with a sort of a 30-year lifespan. Uh, it's not really built to, to last. I still think overall that's probably a better system, but it relies on this mesh of other laws in place. So they probably have a different mortgage system than the United States has. 
and a whole host of other considerations that would meet, need to be different for that to be in place. And there's also that in uh, in China. I think it's the same with Japan, where um, even the traditional temples are regularly rebuilt. They tend to be built of wood, and there's no concept of like super old stone stuff like we would have in Europe. Like we're super proud of our castles and churches that have thousands of years old. And in China, sort of everything is rebuilt every few decades, and it's considered normal. So I found that pretty interesting, and ties back into the original topic. To to give a more concrete example of how uh, zoning laws has changed, so in in I attended in my local city there. Whenever there's a development, they have a design review, and this is where they invite members of the community to come in, look at sketches of the built, proposed building, ask questions to the architect, and essentially a neighborhood council uh, gets to decide whether this passes the requirements for the design review. And these meetings are fucking insufferable because you get these random nobodies that just show up and look at uh, critique uh, some architect's uh, design and then kind of feel compelled to put in their own two cents, even though it's completely incoherent or contradictory. And there's all these constraints in place in terms of how they can present it. So for example, generally they only consider what is known as building mass. So the architect is not allowed to put windows on on the sketches so they show these random strangers the sketch of this monolithic concrete building with no windows and that's what people think is going to be built and so naturally that's all they focus on they don't really consider the other issues the these meetings take hours and i don't think anyone believes that they're actually productive except maybe for the few people that get their opinions heard And just the process can, the uncertainty inherent in the process can delay construction for several years and how flighty capital is. Anytime there is a delay, it's very sensitive to that. And some projects either get canceled completely or severely modified or downgraded. So you're operating under a very different paradigm than what you had before zoning and and the other accoutrements that dictate what gets built in cities before that took uh, hold in the United States. We have, I think, equally first. I've been to equally frustrating meetings, but zoning doesn't seem a particular hot button topic in France the way it is in the U.S. I mean, I hear a lot more stories around zonings or about homeowners associations too that I don't really have the equivalent for in France. There's probably a lot of uh, factors that go into explaining the difference. So, essentially, homes in the United States are seen as an investment, and there's all these tax breaks that encourage. Uh, it, as an investment, and not only as a investment, but the primary investment for middle class families. So there's this inherent tension for municipalities where they need, essentially, they have to win on increasing home prices as much as possible. If you shift that to any other sector, it's obvious why that's ludicrous. Imagine a mayor running on the platform of we raise the prices of food as much as possible for the general public. That's good for farmers, but not good for anyone else. Uh, and so housing is just seen as a special thing where we want to make it expensive, but also keep it cheap. And there's nothing, there's no way to resolve that tension so long as it's seen as a vehicle for investment. I think uh, maybe verging a bit off topic, but one way my understanding of politics and social history and stuff has evolved in the past decade or so is that now I see just the general topic of housing and owning places as being much more important and central than I used to believe. Can you elaborate on that? Meaning that the cost of land, uh, the fact that, I don't know, land costs are going up in big cities and driving people around and 
all the politics around that on wanting to prevent other people from moving in or wanting to subsidize and things like that. It's like almost economics, very strong economic forces meeting each other. And it's almost, there's no way around it that you will have where everybody is, life will be expensive and that will necessarily cause problems because of the link between uh, wages and home prices. You can point to specific... uh successful jurisdictions that try to tackle this problem. I think Tokyo is maybe the best example. Granted, it has a lot of confounding factors in that analysis, but generally, I believe uh, Tokyo has uh, seen an increase in population, but the housing market is not seen as this chaotic uh, sky rise. Uh, uh, I was saying maybe that, that is one issue, and yeah, the to- Tokyo... Uh- Tokyo does sound interesting for that, but there's also the fact that like a lot of social policy, it seems that the consequence would only be to end up increasing more money for everybody, but then the rents would go up almost automatically, and so it would not change anything. I'm sure if we had a dedicated economist, they, they would probably provide some more nuance to that. Uh, that's, that's like a super simplified model, but uh, it's like if you don't take uh, that into account, then your models would be wrong. Anyway, I think we're verging off topic. Another example, another example cited in the United States is uh, by Ed Glazer, who's an economist that studies this uh, area, is uh, Chicago, of all places. Chicago, compared to other uh, cities in the United States, is generally permissive about what it allows to build. And so uh, it is flexible in uh, being able to meet the residents' uh, need for housing. And so it's not seen as a generally very expensive area. Granted, the population of Illinois has been dropping, so that could also be a factor. The talk about experimenting uh, reminds me of a comparison between Paris and London, where it seems that, um, well, I guess zoning or the regulations around buildings in London have been extremely reduced compared to Paris. And as a result, a lot of Londoners have been complaining that the city is kind of ugly. It doesn't really have very, some strong identity. You have a bunch of very different things next to each other. And by contrast, Paris has pretty strict laws which are, are not just about zoning, but about the kind of things you can build and how tall it can be, that tends to give the whole a kind of more homogeneous look, and which which I personally quite appreciate. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've had to uh, come around to that uh, perspective, not because I feel it intensely, just because of a growing kind of empathy or whatever for how other people see things. I mean, when I was younger, I was just kind of like a libertarian, right? Do what we want with your property. Who cares if all of these homes look radically different from each other. But now I, I kind of see why people do care about that. And I don't even, I'm not even a property owner. I've just, uh, you know, pre-monetary self-interest, I've started to come around to that point of view. There are ways to address that concern, even within a libertarian standpoint. So Homeowners Association is an example of essentially a voluntary association that comes together with the express concern of maintaining standards outside of uh, government intervention. And there are ways around eminent domain laws and there are probably ways around uh, monopolistic providers of electricity. And I don't know, though. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's a whole other uh, discussion. Yeah, in France, the general feeling I get is I don't really have a say into the whole architectural choices around the city. There's no equivalent of homeowners associations. And I don't think that whoever I vote for for the mayor would have much of a say in that anyway. I feel it's much more top-down. I don't know if it effectively is, but I get the impression that Americans are much more involved in that process than French people are. They are. And I think one interesting aspect of the difference between, for example, Japan and the United States is that Japan takes property rights much more seriously as a constitutional right. And so that's the basis for why its zoning laws are so much more permissible from the standpoint of property owners. Essentially, if you own something, you have the right to build on it. And there's very little barriers in place to, to prohibit, you, prohibit you from doing so. 
By contrast, despite the popular claim that the United States is the vanguard of capitalism, the property rights are not as well respected from the standpoint of what the property owner can do with it. There's you know, an infinite web of local, municipal, state, and federal laws in place that restrict what you can do with a particular piece of property. So uh, I am the person who likes brutalism here. And as such, I found a lot of his arguments very poor in that he said that he has some rhetoric about how we need to move past all of the old ugly architecture that he hates and how we should move to the new pretty architecture that he likes instead. And these arguments seem to be designed in order to sound nice rather than convince anyone who disagrees with him, because as a person who disagrees with him, they are basically, you need to stop liking bad things and consider liking good things instead. Which, if I think brutalism is a good thing, that's nothing has changed here. What would be your best defense of brutalism? Yeah, not so much the people who, who like brutalism are not allowed to like it. It's that there's very few people who like brutalism. I'm not going to try to argue people into liking brutalism because it's enough of an aesthetic that it would kind of like be like trying to argue that your favorite flavor of ice cream should be chocolate instead of vanilla. That's just not a thing that you can convince someone on. It's an inherent preference. So you're not you, you're not making some kind of practical case. I'm not saying that all of our buildings should be brutalism because I have the objectively correct ideas about architecture. No. <laughs> Although I would like it if they were. So Robinson's probably going to hate me if he ever listens to this podcast, but he reminded me of Ayn Rand and how Ayn Rand ties her aesthetic preferences to her political convictions the same way that Robinson does, where not only is he making an aesthetic argument, but he's also tying it to something much more concrete and more objective, as well as explicitly laying the foundation that it's political. Yeah, see, I, I've always been resisting putting you know politics and art and aesthetics together. Uh, I feel like it's a recipe for being uh, suddenly, you know, maybe not suddenly, it could happen gradually, but turning lots of other people into a problem that don't need to be or something. Concerning modern architecture and maybe maybe brutalism, but like on paper, I tend to agree that I prefer the nice thing with a lot of decorations in principle. But then actually, when I look around the way I actually decorate my own home, it is very light, functional, uh, simple forms, IKEA style, which is kind of, well, not exactly brutalism, more like Bauhaus or something, but it's closer to the kind of modern buildings that in theory I don't like than to the old decoration-heavy thing. The, the decoration-heavy equivalent would be like, you know, those old-style plates with a lot of little paintings on them, or and that kind of stuff feels a bit old and tacky, so... On one side, I'm criticizing architecture, kind of green, but on the other hand, I'm just doing the same thing with my own personal choices. So You're not living your truth. Yeah, so it's, it's maybe something I like, that's kind of decoration-heavy thing, once in a while. But actually, I wouldn't stand if I had to deal with that every day. To be clear, I'm sorry, I jumped in like an hour late or a half hour late, but is everyone here basically against Robinson's take in that article? I agree with Robinson that a lot of modern buildings are ugly. I disagree with his uh, prescription as well as his uh, hypothesis for why that's the case. Too much of a philistine to even really have a strong opinion. You know, it, I, I've decoupled art and aesthetics from politics and I just I can't get that worked up about it. Well, I think he makes a pretty decent. I mean, he doesn't make it very well, but he suggests that there's an empirical case for it as well for ornamentation, simplistic or not even simplistic, but simple and complex. And that uh, the individual craftsmanship of the works are uh, display complexity and craftsmanship. But the 
overall design can be relatively simple and not uh, disharmonious as the terminology goes for architects. And he notes that that is relatively common across cultures that arose individually and separately from one another. I was saying I mostly agreed with you in that uh, the article, um, in that I agree that the older buildings were nicer and that a lot of the current stuff, like post-war stuff, tends to be bad, but I don't really... And it's, it's a bit of a pity because I feel that we just don't care that much about making nice-looking things, but I don't really agree with his diagnosis e- either about the real causes of that. So the other thing that also came to mind when I read the article is um, a short BBC documentary by Stuart Brand. Stuart Brand is uh, famous for popularizing the photo uh, name Earthrise. He also ran the whole Earth catalog, which was... And it was sort of a proto-internet, according to some arguments, I believe, by Kevin Kelly. He has he has very strong opinions about architect architecture. And his documentary, if I could summarize it, is that architects are shitty people in a sense that they're way too self-important and they see pretty much every project that they uh, engage in as a veneration of their own ability rather than considering how it's going to be utilized and what the people to be there are going to be in the building are going to be uh caring about yes can confirm architects are terrible (laughs) he has a lot of praise for uh, older buildings are modular um that's not the right word but he has a lot of praise for older buildings are more adaptable to other uses so he highlights victorian townhomes that can be turned into a hotel they can turn into a law firm they can turn into a music studio they're very adaptable depending on what uh, is necessary and they're very popular and still in use today 100 years after they're, they're built because they're well constructed and they put the, the the primary purpose of their construction was to put the needs of their tenants uh, first first ahead of them uh, but he highlights a lot of uh, baffling examples of uh, architects kind of going ham on their designs uh, so for example they'll they'll have some esoteric feature in a building and then suddenly they'll they'll realize that the way they have the windows facing the the sun creates some sort of oven within this particular level which is not suitable for whatever they're storing there so they have to spend millions of dollars combating that by adding all these weird looking shades but essentially the architects just build whatever they want and then walk away finish with their job without any long-term consideration for whether this is easy to maintain or whether it's uh, comfortable to be in. That's a fair uh, accusation to level at the architecture profession. And especially if you're, con- if you're concerned with the same issues that the current affairs article is. It sounded like in that, uh, in that article, he was upset with them for trying to impress other architects more than, you know, those who would actually be, you know, utilizing the building on a day-to-day basis. And that that definitely mirrors the general problem or the criticism of art, you know. And poetry. Bad modern poetry is aimed at impressing other poets and not sounding... <laughs> no, more if you're more forgivable with poetry, it's like anyone who, anyone who cares to even look is already part of that game. Not the same thing with architecture. Yeah, it's just uh, reiterating Robinson's point. Shitty modern art that we don't, most people don't like is fine. It, it, it's largely avoidable. A weird abstract painting that doesn't do anything for you, that can go up on someone's wall of the person who appreciates. Architecture is something, especially public architecture, is something that is unavoidable and people have to engage with. So the idea of making things warm, welcoming, and compatible with the human psyche is compelling in my book. Rather than 
satisfying certain the aesthetic tastes of certain people. I'm in agreement with your um, assessment, and I think this might be an example of incentives badly aligned that create a disfavorable outcome. So essentially, architects want to be a high-status profession, and the way the way they elevate their position relative to others is to make these bonkers projects that fulfill their goal, but end up hurting whoever else has to has to be involved in in that project. So the hardcore capitalist take here is that the architects are serving the interests of the people who pay them. If the people who pay them care about the building looking a particular way, then they're getting what they want. And if the common man on the street wants to have nice buildings to look at, then he should consider footing the bill. And I'm not entirely prepared to advocate for that position because it seems like empirically a lot of this is just people will hire an architect, tell him to go nuts, and there is not a whole lot of deciding whether or not they do like the aesthetic he's producing. But this is a defense that you could make of architecture as it exists. Aren't most architects just quietly making functional stuff? I mean, somebody has to design big, you know, meat processing plants and stuff. <laughs> I was about to make that point too. <laughs> that is correct. But there isn't a lot of uh, status from that. Yeah, that's correct. But uh, there is a lot of just regular old brick and mortar stuff going up. And there is a sort of consciousness among architectures and clients of architects too, that there's a general dissatisfaction with the more intellectual heady designs. And there is a bit of a clamor for more welcoming designs in everyday builds. Most of the projects we're working on are mimicking pre-war aesthetics, not in like a kitschy way that's ugly, like uh, Robin mentions in the article, but uh, channeling that and trying to deliver on something that doesn't feel out of place in older environments. So Robinson's complaints are largely heard because it's a relatively common sentiment to be dissatisfied with uh, concrete and glass monstrosities. One thing that Robinson kind of hinted at is that one of the reasons he thinks the glass spiral monstrosities are bad is that they are unpopular among the people and there's various polls to support this. And I think he's getting at the start of an interesting idea, which is that if you want to reform architecture and make it so that less people hate it, the obvious solution is to make it more democratic. And technically, public architecture is currently democratic in that there's an elected official who appoints a bureaucrat, who appoints a bureaucrat, who hires an architect. But in practice, that's way too far away from the direct voting of people for them to really have any impact. And so if you wanted buildings to reflect the taste of people, it seems like the solution is to actually let the common man vote on what buildings he's going to be walking past. And the counter to that is attending any <laughs> design review meetings. Yeah. And also counterfactual by the state of pre-World War II architecture being very non-democratic. Even probably less democratic with less planning meetings like uh, Yassim was mentioned then than now. And it's more a matter of just having architects that aren't up their own asses about it and have uh, appreciation for beauty and not a disdain for it. But then that gets uh, kind of parodied as this wouldn't be a problem if it wasn't a problem. Yeah, no. Just to kind of recap on why the, like getting the public's input on this is, is not uh, you know, very workable in practices. I'm just going to guess that they say things like, you know, why can't you have a bridge right there? 
instead of right there, you know, not understanding all what, what goes into it, you know, physically, materials, cost wise, all of that stuff. I mean, I'm not in architecture, but I can have some general understanding of why that would not be feasible. You just get one person after another just kind of spitballing their way through it without knowing what they're doing. Is that what the problem is? Yeah, essentially the same criticism that you could level at voter ignorance. Uh, you could level to uh, these uh, design review meetings. Uh, people don't really know what they're talking about, especially when they're uh, wading into a topic that they are unfamiliar with, such as architecture. And so they're just kind of spitballing. They don't also they don't have any consideration for the costs, so they can like sitting on Santa Claus's lap, ask for whatever without any uh, constraints. So it just becomes a mess of I don't know what I'm talking about. I also don't know how much it costs, but I want this. The Santa Claus thing. Yeah metaphor yeah is, is there an example of like a large amount of people voting on something in order to design something well i mean it seems that that's that would never work and never has at the same time you can get a people aren't so good at articulating what they want but they are relatively good at IDing what they don't like yeah and so a workable system would very much not be everyone votes on the whole design process so much as architects propose buildings and the public picks their preferred option. Essentially a market economy. Yes. And earlier I mentioned that technically public buildings are eligible to a vote in that an elected official selects a bureaucrat, selects a bureaucrat, hires an architect. But in practice, that's too distant. And the fact that it's too distant kind of proves that people don't actually care that much because if for some reason everyone woke up tomorrow and they decided their number one issue was no more brutalist buildings, then mayors would start running on a campaign of no more brutalist buildings. And they would make sure that the bureaucrat who gets appointed selects an architect who will not build a brutalist building. And so in a revealed preferences sense, public works people don't care about them that much. To, to maybe recap some of the reasons that have been given for our eyesores, so architects have a huge ego and just want to impress each other. There's not enough democratic inputs, uh, safety and regulations, making it cheap. Taste has just changed as it, random, changed as it randomly does all the time. And uh, also just more lights, new, uh, new, art, new, uh, new materials make it possible to have just wider windows. And so people just build things that way. Any other reasons we missed? Also, socialism will save us oh, all. Yeah, it's capitalism's fault. Right. <laughs> yes, that too. Because why I found this topic interesting is because there's there's one, this effect we observe. So, okay, buildings change style and then there's 10 different competing explanations about why that happened. And I'm not really, uh, I'd be interested in knowing which is the real one. And that's why it's interesting to compare it to, for example, art, because some of the in incentive things with the architect's ego are, are similar. But some uh, some mechanisms aren't the same. You have this whole parallel complaint about how modern art has the same problems as modern architecture, but a lot of the like all the stuff about regulations or or costs don't apply at all to uh, art. Just good distinction. Okay, moving on. I vote for Disney movies. I'm willing to go with Disney movies, even though I don't really have much to contribute. Uh, just because it's lighter and maybe more contemporary. Uh, contemporary. Uh, what's the fucking word? Contemporaneous. Contemporaneous. Contemporary. <laughs> Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> more relevant nowadays. And more linked to what we were talking about earlier. English is my third language. That's my defense. Contemporaneous. I'm going to I'm gonna edit this and it's going to be fucking buttery smooth. <laughs> no one's going to notice. I have my own recording. <laughs> You're doomed. 
<laughs> okay, so go ahead. Yeah, one reason I wanted to bring that up is was I was listening to Jordan Peterson. I asked, yes, he has several videos where he complains about how Disney, instead of taking all stories like they used to, are now inventing their own and they think that they can invent their uh, their own fairy tales, whereas actually they can't. And I, I tend to mostly like Jordan Peterson, but uh, on that point, I, I kind of disagree in that uh, specifically, for example, uh, the What's It Frozen, which has its own somewhat feminist-ish message. What I actually liked a lot about that movie is that it is, even though I'm not particularly feminist or socialist or whatever, I'm slightly more on the conservative side, it, that it actually contains good relationship advice. As it's, it's almost as if Disney was saying, oh, wow, we have all this power to influence all these little girls. We have to hammer in one message is that you shouldn't marry a guy the day, the day you met him, or you shouldn't actually sleep with a guy the day you met him or something like that. But they turned it as marry him. And I was thinking, hey, that's like pretty good advice. And Disney deciding that it has its media power to hammer in useful, actionable advice to impressionable young minds is like very good thing. And then, uh, then I saw Jordan Peterson complaining about that. So for anyone that's not familiar, Civilized, can you give a brief overview of what the message of Frozen is and why you like it and why you generally like Peterson and why you uh, disagree with what exactly is the problem with Peterson's uh, position on this? But we also shouldn't operate on the assumption that anyone listening has. I guess having kids, you assume everybody saw the latest Disney movies, even though I'm like a snobby Frenchman and yeah, I'll have seen all the latest Disney movies, especially the popular ones. But yeah, basically part of the plot is one of the girls meets a prince and they fall in love at first sight and they want to get married. And there's, and as soon as another character hears about that, they say, this is stupid. You shouldn't get married the day you met somebody. And it's, it becomes a bit of a running joke. And of course he's against that. And it turns into this whole drama thing. And of course, in retrospect, it turns out that they were right. They getting married the guy it turned out was tricking her and wanted to take advantage of her of her position as a princess so it's essentially disney being meta about its prior princess narratives. Things. yes 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 and which i thought was pretty a move in the good direction and not traditional at all so jordan peterson doesn't really exactly dig into the specific plot points i looked a bit i didn't find anything on that for him because uh, he has a lot of general points about myths that are i not may not be retranscribing this very accurately but the general idea is that we've accumulated myths that work and uh, that reflect some long wisdom of the ages of sorts or at least some fundamental stories about how human life is and about how the traditional fairy Tales are also a kind of iconic family drama and that teach us lessons about life. Peterson, uh, and this, I'm a bit mixing Peterson and Jung, but Peterson took a lot of stuff from Carl Jung here. And uh, Peterson was, was saying that it's very wrong of Disney to think that they can invent things that are better than that. And inventing a new fairy tale is not, not something you could just do with a snap of the hand and trying to push what is, in a sense, feminist messages, feminist propaganda in, uh, in Disney movies is uh, mostly wrong. Peterson is not a huge fan of feminism. I think his take that it's propaganda well from the article that you linked he says that they sat down and intentionally created propaganda rather than setting out to tell a good story i think this message is provably false because disney have actually talked about the process of creating frozen they talk about how the story evolves like there was an early draft that changed and we can see from this, which I'll go into, that actually it was definitely not created as propaganda. The original version of Frozen ha was a lot closer to the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, where basically 
Elsa is an evil ice queen, and she's of no relation to the protagonists. And we start with this prophecy that ruler with a frozen heart will bring doom to the kingdom. And everyone assumes that it's Elsa. And the idea is that in the third act, Elsa makes some army of snow monsters that are attacking the kingdom or something. And then the evil prince tries to destroy them all with an avalanche, but it also risks destroying the kingdom. And the twist is that he was the bad guy all along. He's the ruler with a cold heart because he's just a sociopath. And they found that this story kind of didn't work. And they started playing with the idea of, well, so in that version of the story, Elsa gets redeemed at the very end because she has to save the day and use her powers to stop the avalanche. But they found that that story didn't work very well and they needed to change it. And so from there, they had the idea of what if Elsa was the sister of Anna, the main protagonist character. And from there, they kind of evolved into the current story where Elsa is initially like it's this it's this thing that you can vaguely see as a gay rights metaphor where she is closeted with her power and that is the source of all the problems and the evil prince is trying to take over the kingdom i will link the article below and we can put it in the podcast because it's a little long to go into here but basically if you read through the evolution of the story, it's very clear that no one sat down and said, today I will make some feminist propaganda. It's propagating feminist ideas, though. I say that neutrally. Like the yes, ideology it is, bleeds but... through. Wait, so, yeah, so I, I want to quickly step in. Like The idea that you shouldn't jump into a relationship is now feminist propaganda? Is that is that the premise? <laughs> I actually haven't seen the movie, so I'm just kind of interrogating here. Yeah, I haven't either, but... The... Yeah. Okay, that's so, generally the message that I'm getting. I have seen the movie. There's kind of two parts to it. One, there's this kind of the twist is this moral that sisterly love is more important than dating the prince that you just met. Peterson presumably sees it as feminist propaganda in that it's rejecting the traditional prince and princess narrative, which he's very big on. And anyway, <laughs> so <laughs> it's propaganda for doing this. And moreover, that Disney kind of deliberately sat down to make this be propaganda, which is not consistent with their story about how the narrative evolved. And like, you could argue if you want to stretch definitions that it is propagating feminist ideas, but it is very much not a deliberate piece of feminist propaganda that was written by blue-haired social justice warriors. I'm not very familiar with Peterson. I read the the Time magazine article and it was largely inscrutable to me. And I'm trying to keep an open mind. Uh, the term propaganda is, is generally used as an inflammatory and derogatory description of whatever or whatever message is being conveyed. So I, I'm trying to understand what exactly his premise. So the way I see it, moral of the story of Frozen is don't jump into a relationship. And sometimes the bond with your sister is better than this random guy that you met. If that's the baseline for what is considered feminist propaganda. Isn't it also a princess don't need no prince? Generally kind of putting that message across. Sure. Like if that's considered, if that's the baseline for what is considered feminist propaganda, then that's like really, really low baseline and, and liable to you know subsume pretty much anything that is vaguely positive or or female-oriented. In slight defense of Peterson, uh, the plot point that I was pointing out is not necessarily the main plot point of the movie. 
it's just one that I found was a pretty interesting message to hammer in, but not necessarily the one that Peterson was objecting to. It was more about the general... The plot point I was talking about was the whole uh, getting married to somebody you just met is just stupid. Yeah, I don't think Peterson even objected to that in the article or in any of his commentary. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, and and that, that aspect is one that makes me, yeah, this piece is propaganda and that's a good thing. And uh, but on on the other end, I think he's mostly objecting to the whole. The message of the movie is a woman doesn't need a man, something like that. And uh, general subversion of prince princess uh, archetype. Yeah, probably also yes. It is it is Disney yes. subverting Disney. Yes. I think they're pretty open about that. So it's kind of it's. I think you can more interpret it as Peterson just railing against the practice of Disney subverting itself over and over again until there's nothing left. Yeah, I can't help but read a little bit of his criticism as he is a Jungian who really likes classical fairy tales and he is very mad that Disney is abandoning them for abandoning them for anything else. And it's not really that he objects to the specific thing they're doing, just that they are not doing more classic fairy tales. Yeah, it seems like uh, an appeal to tradition for the sake of tradition. There's no accompanying justification for it. Yeah, I, I think there's a bit of that, some of that going on. Is there any defense of Peterson besides <laughs> this? <laughs> well, there's there's the empirical argument then that there these patterns in the story that he talks about Roy Free, uh, they pop up across cultures and they develop independently. Basically natural selection for memes, to put it in terms more comfortable around here right but but he goes further than that he he says essentially like you can't create new stories unless it's already been created that's the understanding that i got from the article i've never really gotten that message from him or even that article like he he like he points to he says he he loves kung fu panda like that's a relatively new he, he harps on that all the time as one of the best pieces of uh modern animation so explicitly the interviewer says aren't we allowed to make up new stories and his answer is not for political reasons so maybe there's some nuance i'm missing but that's that's a vague answer and you know potentially liable to shut down any creation of any story if it's plausibly associated with a political basis well i think it's probably that he didn't like that specific story and therefore, he, has, he considered that this story was made for political reasons, which is why it's a bad story. Like, there was this old Yudkowsky post about political art. And yeah, pol uh, stories that are mainly meant as political propaganda tend to be a bit crappy stories, especially if you don't really buy into the politics. So I can uh, totally understand objecting to that. It was that we have different tastes in terms of stories, just like we have different tastes in terms of buildings. I'm trying to think what kind of story wouldn't even, would not be political. Because pretty much everything you can tie a moral to, and that moral could be plausibly argued as furthering the interests of the society that it's present. Oh, sure, but there's a more political, like there's some issues or hot button political issues these days versus something where you have to really look hard to find the political link in it. Yeah, everything is political. Some things are more political than others. Yeah, I guess so. To me, that tends to bias against modern uh, stories just because the political overtones are much more obvious and easy to discern. Whereas if something is sufficiently attenuated from the time it was created in, it's, it's much less, it's a lot uh, harder to see the political overtones. Well, I'm prepared to argue that that means it isn't really political anymore. Like, so the original hunchback of Notre Dame, to tie it back to architecture, was a story 
where basically the author went to see the Notre Dame Cathedral, and he thought it was the prettiest gosh darn thing ever, and he decided to write a story specifically intended to make people fall in love with the Notre Dame Cathedral. And his pet issue was that the government wasn't spending enough money on historical preservation. And so he writes this story, which is kind of a love letter to this cathedral. Now, 200 years later, you wouldn't know that to read it. The point was to create historical preservation because he succeeded. The Notre Dame Cathedral got a bunch of resources put into protecting it and there may have been issues recently, but <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> for a good long while, the government was spending a lot of money making sure the Notre Dame Cathedral remained intact and available and pretty to any everyone. So his political goal had been accomplished. And so if you read the story today, you would not take it as an argument for historical preservationism. And that's because it, to you, it's kind of not anymore. It has stopped being political. To me, that describes a form of almost inverse statute of limitation, where if a story is too new, then it's too politically tied. But if you wait enough times, enough years, then it's sufficiently attenuated that it stands on its own. Or at least that's the impression that people have. Well, to go back to the other example, is Kung Fu Panda political? Like, I don't know. I can't find a political message in that one. I mean, if you give me like $300 in three hours, I'm sure I can knock out a hot <laughs> take. <laughs> that's the, that's the, everything's political. I think it's more the, uh, are you going into it with the intention of propagating political ideas? It just feels like you can say it about anything. Like the, I think intentionality is a, is an undervalued aspect. Like I'm trying to think of the, the latest movies I've seen. I think, it, what was it? The, the animal one by Pixar? Fuck, Animal City or some shit? Zootopia? Zootopia? Yeah, so Zootopia, essentially the message is you can be whatever you want. Don't be held back by your genetics or species. Uh, the message that was actually Blake's latest ideology in that. Yeah, it's funny that you pick Zootopia because there was some pretty strong racial themes in Zootopia. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, totally. And it was it was interesting for them to like try to get around it, or not. I, I don't even know if they did successfully, but it wasn't. I don't know. I'm not familiar enough with the commentary around it. But you could you could turn it into a racial uh, fable about how you're meant to stick in your lane or a fable around, uh, gender. Yeah. Either one. What, what, what I liked about Zootopia and which, uh, is, is that it was, uh, like they had a very interesting kind of politically charged message, but it wasn't really in your face and a direct obvious analogy for something like you could say that maybe large animals are male and small animals are female to compare to our world. Or you could say that carnivorous would be blacks, herbivores would be white, something like that. But it doesn't really fit completely. And the world has its own rules. So it's an analogous in some very vague, vague way. It doesn't need to be a one-to-one comparison, but essentially the message is some species are better suited for certain professions than others. And the counterpoint is the main character who's a rabbit that tries to be a police officer. And she's showcased as successful because, you know, it's almost like a reverse of, it's almost like a David and Goliath story. It's like, oh, like they can do something too. But it's, it felt ham, ham fisted in a sense because essentially like everyone, every other police officer is a lion, a buffalo or a nicerous 
essentially some jacked up person that can be rough and tumble with the with uh, the duties of their job. But, but actually, for for me, part of the part of the story was that what her name, Judy Hobbs, was affirmative action and didn't really quote deserve to be in the police, something like that, but still got there anyway, and it turned out okay. That's that's a bit of one way I see it. Yeah, Zootopia was depending on whether you like it, either confused or open-ended enough that people could see a lot of different messages in it. And that led to a lot of people getting angry about seeing a message they didn't like in it because this is the internet. And of course that happened. I think they did a pretty good job. Another example would be the Lego movie, which has more explicit uh, political overtones. The villain in that case, I believe, is called Mr. Business or something similar. Uh, and the general theme of the movie is that you shouldn't you shouldn't be a conformist and creativity is great or something like that. And it's okay to make mistakes. That's like the theme for half of movies aimed at kids and children for the past like three years or something. Right. But the, but the point is you can uh, finagle a political message from pretty much any piece of <laughs> um, art. I think the second Lego movie had much more uh, like anti-toxic masculinity uh, messages. It was still a pretty good movie. I'm still trying to, yeah, it was, I'm still trying to like understand Peterson's point that doesn't devolve into a caricature of old stuff good, new stuff bad. <laughs> yeah, there's some of that going on. The old stuff that survived to today, good. There was a lot of old trash, but it was recognized as trash and discarded. And that has a selection effect. Essentially, only the good stuff survives, and that makes you even more nostalgic for an era that never existed. I haven't seen them, but I I, I saw some criticism of the recent Star Wars movie that had so much political messaging that it kind of ruined the movie. I don't know how true that is. So the recent Star Wars movie had a lot of problems, and it had some ham-fisted political message, but I don't think it's fair to blame the movie's problems on the ham-fisted political messaging. It was kind of just also there. I don't have a handy example of a movie ruined by ham-fisted political messages. I can think of Crash from, I think, 2008. The Last Jedi has made people YouTube careers just off of ripping <laughs> that movie apart. So it is pretty remarkable how divisive it was. And also the toxoplasmic defense it elicited from others in response. So it is a very culture war film now. It's actually kind of hard to talk about that film without it devolving in petty political argument. Yeah, for some reason, the internet initially settled on an argument where a bunch of kind of clickbaity right-wing YouTubes put out videos about how Ray is an SJW and therefore Star Wars has been ruined forever or something. And that really set the tone and made it so that if you criticize Star Wars, now some people will assume you are one of those anti-SJW people. And it's all a terribly poisoned debate. And I'm one of those horrible anti-SJW well kind of people, but I still liked uh, Zootopia and uh, and Lego 2 and Frozen that have these... That's because you were you were able to find your own reactionary interpretation of the work. Not really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should say, I was... I am able to enjoy... I was able to enjoy the, the Last Jedi in spite of its flaws. I still think it's an enjoyable movie, but it's also uh, pretty. Inter- it's also very valid uh, complaints surrounding it. If anything, I find the the meta drama surrounding the complaints to be more entertaining. There's a lot of dimensions to enjoy art from. From there's a lot of standpoints to enjoy art, and I think Peterson, despite his protestations, he would be lumped in with a lot of people that just look at pieces of art and 
whether they agree with the political message or not, that's uh, that forms the entire basis of their opinion of the work. Actually, Peterson's home has a bunch of um, Soviet art posters. That's correct. I stand corrected on that point. With whom, whose message he definitely doesn't agree, but uh, he still thinks that they can be great art. Uh, we can either... Uh... Cut it early or talk about harbinger taxes. Yeah, if you guys want to wonk up on that, I'd like to learn about what the hell that is. I can play it on layman. I've never even heard that word before. 93, do you want to set us up? Right. So harbinger taxes are a very obscure thing that was proposed a couple of years ago by a couple of people. And so I don't blame anyone for not having heard of them. They are a very radical and very wonky idea for a way to redo the tax system. In the original proposal, they were aimed at all property, and I don't like the idea of doing them for all property because it has some logistical issues. So when I'm going to make the case for them, I'm going to be talking about only harbinger taxes for land. So the idea of harbinger taxes is that everyone must set a value for their home and they will be taxed at some percentage of that value, the way property taxes work. But you set your own price rather than the government evaluating your value. And so obviously this creates an incentive for you to set your price at $1 and pay very little tax. And so the other half of the system is that everyone must sell their home to anyone who is willing to pay the posted value. So if you set your value to $1 to get no taxes, then someone will very quickly buy your house and set the value to something reasonable so that no one else buys it off of them. And the way these incentives balance out is that if you set the tax rate efficiently, which so a lot of this depends on some kind of theory world assumptions where assume a spherical frictionless economy. But the idea is if you set the tax rate to a magic value, then you will make it so that people are incentivized to set the value of their house at its actual value to them. And because of the competing incentives of you don't want your house to get bought out from under you versus you want to not pay very much tax. And the tax rate that will achieve this magic value is proportional to the chance that your house finds a buyer. So in a spherical frictionless economy, the optimal tax rate would be very close to zero because spherical frictionless economy assumes that everyone has perfect information and will sort of scour for the best deals and find them immediately. Just to step back, there there was, I'm blanking on the name, but wasn't there a proposal in the 19th century to have taxation be entirely based on property value? Yes, that's Georgist land tax. And so harbinger taxes don't require that all tax revenue be collected from property. It's basically just a novel system of doing property tax, where the idea is that if we can force people to put a value on their home and incentivize it to be close to the amount that they actually value it, then this does really good things for the property market because houses and other buildings are not very liquid. They don't change hands very often. People don't know how much they're worth because they don't change hands very often and there's no posted prices. If we can make everyone post an accurate price for land and the buildings, then that will, if you like capitalism, have some very good effects because people are now able to do capitalism much better on all of that land. So harbinger taxes does seem like a logical extension of uh, Georgia's tax, correct? 
Well, just a different it is the, implementation. The clever trick. Yeah. So the original proposal, like I said, proposed to do it for all property rather than just land taxes. And there are some issues that arise from that that are not applying to land. The biggest one is the idea of bundling. So you have, say, two pieces of property, like you have a house and you have a car. And the amount that you value them depends on the fact that you own each other. Like maybe you live very close to where you work. And so you own a car, but you don't value it that much because you don't need it very much. You could just walk to work. In this case, you would assign your car a very low value and your house a pretty high value. But then someone could buy your house and then your car would suddenly become much more important to you, but they could also buy your car for a low value. And that would have obviously had some inopportune effects. So just to step back and provide more context, Georgia's taxes was a proposal in the 19th century to base all taxation on just property values. Instead of taxing income or import tariffs or anything similar to that, it would be entirely based on uh, property values. And I think part of the idea is to encourage a more efficient and judicious use of uh, property to discourage squatting, to discourage uh, absentee landlords from uh, just holding on to property without using it. And when I say property, I'm talking about real estate, real property. And I'm generally sympathetic to that idea, but it does betray some some implementation difficulties, such as, as you pointed out, 93, land is uh, infrequently traded. And so to get an accurate valuation is very, very difficult. Uh, and it's dependent on a lot of different factors. Ostensibly, you could just have a cadre of government-run evaluators that go around to different property and uh, try to figure out what an approximation of what the fair market value is of that property. But they're going to be wildly off. But that's where Harbinger taxes step in. Exactly. So Harbinger is kind of a, a clever response to this difficulty in the sense that the this hypothetical government assessor doesn't really have an incentive. Well, potentially, they, if they're hired by the government, they would have an incentive to to claim that the price is as high as possible, although that's sort of countered by eminent domain acquisition, I suppose. But that's also infrequent enough that it might not be an issue. So harbinger tax is a way to, to kind of throw the information-seeking algorithm to the masses and let everyone have a direct incentive to be as accurate as possible regarding the valuation of, of its land. So is that a fair assessment of harbinger tax? Yes. And so, like I said, the initial... Value has the pro problems with the bundling of property. So if I want my house's value to depend on my car's value and vice versa, then you could try to patch the system by creating the ability for me to set bundles where, okay, you can buy these pieces of property from me, but only if you buy both at once. But then this immediately becomes very complicated because people have incentives to create bundles that are very hard to buy because they're a bunch of kind of awkward and unrelated items so that they can set the value of the bundle to be low to, and pay low taxes on it, but no one buys it because it's kind of an awkward bundle. And this is why I prefer harbinger taxes specifically for land, because while land can have some bundling, like if you're a corporation that owns two buildings next to each other and you want them both to be offices, but in general, land is there's not a whole lot of value in one piece of land that is 
heavily conditional on you also owning a separate piece of land in the same way that there is value in you owning a car depending on where you live. I think maybe you're downplaying that concern. So I, I, first of all, the, the first thing I thought of when you uh, reference, reference to harbinger tax for all property, not just real estate, is the significant privacy concern that comes with that. Hypothetically, there would be some sort of public database that lists every piece of property that is in existence with the value that you attach to it. And everyone has the power to purchase it at any point, correct? Yeah, there are also that sort of logistical concerns around that in that not just for privacy, but I mean, theoretically, I would have a $1 price tag on my toothbrush and someone could buy it. And then I would have to somehow get my toothbrush to this guy halfway across the city who decided he values the toothbrush at a dollar and 10 cents. And it's very obviously a system that was designed for a spherical frictionless economy where there's all those transaction costs kind of get assumed away. Right. And from that standpoint, I I think pretty much everyone will agree that there's just no real benefit to having that uh, to, to having that kind of system because you already have if you if you set up any sort of trade economy you already have a capacity to trade uh, what you don't want and acquire what you do want yeah the the main idea for harbinger taxes is that by forcing people to declare a hopefully accurate value for things you can make sure that the thing gets into the hand of the person who values it the most because if I value this thing at 500 and you value this thing at 600 in a normal trade economy well theoretically if we both knew that we had those valuations then I would come talk to you and we would sell to each other but in practice we don't really have posted values for a lot of our property and so harbinger tax is a big part of it is just attempting to add more information to the market so if I had to value my computer I would put a $500 price tag on it and then If you wanted a computer, you could search the database and find, oh, this guy has a computer that he will sell for 500 bucks and you could come up with it. And that would be an improvement on our current system where I'm not going to go to the trouble of listing everything I own in eBay just in case someone wants to buy it. But but you are going through the trouble of cataloging all your property and listing, ascribing a a monetary value to it, which seems as logistically annoying as listing everything on eBay. Yeah. Like I said, I'm not a big fan of harbinger taxes for all property. I feel like land gets away a lot of the problems of it. Not all of them, which I will go into later, but it is most applicable to land. And it has this nice convergence with all of the Georgist theory on taxation as well. So is the goal of a harbinger tax primarily one of information discovery or one intended for uh, finding an efficient public finance method. So the paper that proposed it, which uh, I linked in the show notes and we can attach to the podcast, that paper proposed it solely as a way to grease the wheels of the economy, to incentivize the market to work better, get property into the most productive hands and so on. But in theory, a Georgist would probably look at it and say, 
oh, wow, this seems like a great way to raise state revenue. And so it's kind of open to your interpretation. Yeah, so I, I, I was taking George's point of view. For me, one of the main benefits of this kind of things is that you don't have to tax all the other stuff anymore if you just tax land. So the point is not necessarily to raise state revenue, but rather to release the grip, to release the friction that you have when you're taxing wages or other purchases and stuff like that. That's true, because taxation comes with a whole host of implementation costs associated with it. So if you're open a business, you have to pay property taxes, you have to pay payroll taxes, you have to pay license fees, all sorts of things that make it administratively more expensive to to run your enterprise. Yeah. One of the classic Georgist arguments is that, as we all know, taxation is a disincentive to things. If you tax jobs, you will get less jobs. But on the other hand, if you tax land, well, it's very hard to shelter your land. And they're not making more of it anyway, so we shouldn't be too worried about disincentivizing it. Right. And I don't want to turn this podcast into a libertarian power hour. So just I just want to note that there is a very real benefit, even if you're a hardcore socialist that believes in uh, extremely high taxes. It's a form of ensuring honesty from uh, the people that the assets and the people that you're taxing. And speaking of hardcore socialism, they have something to like about this system, actually, because implicit in the notion that you must sell for your stated value, we are kind of abolishing the concept of property rights. That's true. There is still more property than an anarcho-communist might like, but it is definitely a weakening of the idea of property rights in that you can just have your property bought out from you at any time, and you you're basically renting your property. You still have the right to destroy it if you want for some reason, but you will have to pay for the right to keep having your property. Right. So because it takes away one of the pillars of private property, uh, inalienability. Oh, fuck. I'm not saying that right. Inalienability. Inalienable. I'll, I'll, I'll edit it in post. <laughs> <laughs> Was there anything else related to this? To go into some of the problems, part of the model is, like I said, built on the idea of a spherical frictionless economy. And one of the issues that you have when introducing it to the real world is the costs of relocating. Let's say that you and I live next to each other, and each of our houses are worth $500,000. And this is kind of the average market value. Your house is blue and my house is pink. And I like the color blue and you like the color pink. So we look at each other's houses and say, I think your house is worth $501,000 because it's a nicer color than mine. And you also look at my house and think it's worth $501,000 because it's a nicer color than yours. Under Harbinger taxes, we would immediately see this, buy each other's houses, and then swap houses. And the trick is, this has abstracted away the cost of actually getting all of our furniture out of our houses and moving it into the other guy's house, which means that the system is not perfectly efficient in the way we hope it is in the models. Right. One of the simplifications that's necessary when you're discussing these theoretical frameworks is to assume zero transaction costs, because otherwise it just becomes way too uh, mathematically uh, difficult to to go through any problems. Are transaction costs a problem here, for the even for the case with the blue and the pink uh, house? Well, no, th this would be kind of the ideal example, ostensibly, but even that has a significant hurdle to overcome and a significant cost. Even if you're just shifting things from one adjoining property to another, that still takes time and effort. But is, is this a problem that has to uh, harbor taxes? Because I don't say you considered it moving house 
is like ten dollars worth worth ten dollars to you, and in which case you would not value buying a house for five hundred one. Yes, and. You can factor that into your purchasing decisions and not make the purchase based on that. But part of the idea with harbinger taxes is that you put your house at the amount that it is worth to you and everyone else will buy it if it is worth more to them. And this way we ensure that the land ends up in the most productive hands. But one of the catches is we can have a case where if Yassine and I swapped our blue and pink houses, then the land would have become more productive, productive in the sense that we like it. Because of the transaction costs, we don't do this. And in the case of moving houses, this is relatively easy to overcome because theoretically our costs for moving from one house to the other are going to be approximately the same. And so you can kind of consider this as, okay, moving costs some amount that is proportionate to how productive the land is going to be for us. And so it's kind of just an extra little bit of tax on there. The real issue comes up if you have two people who want to use the land for a radically different use. Like if someone wants to buy my house, bulldoze it and build a factory on that land, then the costs involved in doing that relocation are going to be a lot higher. Basically, this makes it not this perfect economic model, which has a bunch of nice, desirable properties. It is still a realistic proposition. It's not realistic in the sense that we could ever convince people to pass it, but it's realistic in the sense that we could argue it would work if we somehow did. Well, I don't see the transaction costs as that big of a, a problem. And I assume that if you somehow did implement this, if someone does move into a new piece of property, they would be desensitized from immediately moving out. And therefore, they would raise their value, their valuation of that piece of property to accommodate or to take into account the cost of moving out. And so someone coming in and surveying the value that is ascribed by the current property owner would also have to take into account whether the total cost of acquiring the property, which includes the valuation that the current property owner has to not move out, plus the new owner's cost to moving in, whether that entire summation is worth, worth it to them. Yeah. In the real world, the system would still mostly work. It's just that in this spherical frictionless economy where you assume that there are no costs of relocation, then implementing harbinger taxes with the right taxation rate will guarantee that all land ends up in the most productive hands, which is a really strong thing for your economic model to do. And it's a nice property that we would very much like to have. And unfortunately, Introducing the idea of transaction costs makes that property no longer true. And it doesn't like ruin the model and cause all prices to collapse to zero or some insane behavior that makes it unimplementable. It just makes the model slightly less desirable than it is on paper. Fair, but within the standpoint of what is theoretically possible, it does seem to be the best mechanism of ensuring that given the reality of trans transaction costs. Yes. And so... One of the other nice things that it does is it lets us create not just sort of markets in the sense of that we can shop around for things, but it solves some prop. First of all, it gets rid of the need for eminent domain entirely, because if the government wants to buy your land to build a railway on it, well, then there's a listed price for it. They can just buy your land. But also when you're doing projects like building a railway, one of the problems in the real world is that you have to buy a lot of different properties, like there's a bunch of houses all in a row and you need to knock them all over. And 
if there's a single holdout, then they can raise their prices or just refuse entirely, and that will stonewall your railway project, and that's very inconvenient. Under harbinger taxes, you can just look at everyone's house and see oh, I see this house is worth $1 million, this house is worth $1.5 million, this is worth $1 million, and then you can buy them all at once. And there's no opportunity for people to be holdouts. And if someone somehow gets wind of the fact that you are making a railway project and they raise their house prices in advance of this, then they actually have to pay extra tax for the privilege of being a holdout. So if you're concerned about large projects like that, it has beneficial properties there as well. So one thing I want to ask about, uh, you said that one problem that you had with applying it to all property is the bundling issue. And I think maybe you're discounting how severe of a problem bundling can be with regards to real property, i.e. land. So the most obvious example I can think of is uh, access to a road. So if you value a, a plot at X amount, and some, someone just comes in and slices a third, the front third of that piece of property that is adjoining to the road, the remaining uh, lot is going to be significantly less valuable because you lose potentially access to your property or at least you lose convenient access to the property. Right. So the idea is that people can't buy a third of your house. They have to buy your entire plot of land or none of it because you can get silly behavior like that otherwise. The bundling issue that I was describing is basically, imagine if I had two houses, and for some reason, I really like having two houses. And the it's not just that owning one house gives me $500 worth of value, and owning the second house also gives me $500 worth of value. Say that I really like being able to walk between my two houses that gives me an extra $100 of value. And so the total value of these houses to me is $1,100. But I can't price the houses at 600 If anyone bought one of these houses, then I would be losing $600 of value because I now am down one $500 house and I'm down the $100 ability to walk between these houses. Well, well just a small correction. Uh, really, you'd be losing $100 worth of value because you'd be compensated for the sold house. Yes. Yeah. I would be out that extra $100. And so if I price these houses at $600 each, then that way I would not lose any value because someone would pay me $600 for the first house. But I would be paying $1,200 worth of tax, $600 each, and I only have $1,100 worth of value. And this is an example of the bundling problem. And it's much easier to have that crop up in regular non-land property as opposed to with land property. And that's why I'm fond of using harbinger taxes only for land. There are solutions to the bundling problem where you can give people the ability to sort of declare, okay, these two objects are bundled. You can only buy them both. But then it gets really logistically difficult to implement that in a way that people don't create really wonky bundles that are deliberately hard to buy. Well, the solution to that is that the wonky bundles are hard to buy, presumably would be very high, highly valued on paper, and therefore they'd be paying a high tax. That would be the kind of counterbalance, right? No, the idea is that I try to find like four completely unrelated objects and bundle them all together and then underprice each of the objects on the theory that yes, each of the under objects is underpriced, but no one wants all four of these objects. And so 
they don't want to pay the total price of the bundle. Okay, that makes sense. So there's still some issues to work out on on this matter. Yeah, and that's very easy to do when you have Parbiter taxes applying to all property. Like I could bundle my house and my car and a painting that I have and an oil rig that I own in a different county. And there's kind of no limit to the arbitrary random objects you can throw together. And this makes it very easy to create a bundle that no one particularly wants. Whereas with land, you have some bundling potential, like I just described the guy who owns two houses. And depending on your implementation, you can either say, well, that guy's out of luck. I guess he just doesn't get to bundle his two houses. Or you can try to make bundling systems that will be resistant to this perverse behavior. Like you can only bundle contiguous properties or properties within a certain distance of each other. And that way people don't do totally insane things with it. So in essence, uh, there's some issues with harbinger tax and it it doesn't seem like we'll we'll have it ready by the 2020 election. (laughs) Yeah, this is also, as I hinted earlier, it's one of those radical wonk proposals that does not have even a tiny chance of seeing the light of day because it's just way too out there for the populace to and agree on yeah look the the brief googling i have done of this topic while you guys were talking about it uh the images for it the headers for the articles were all just harbinger tax vaporwave style so it it kind of gives off the oh this is even more ridiculous than ubi isn't it Well, it's made sense to me. So, so we just need UBI running for president with Harbinger Tax as the vice president. <laughs> yeah, earlier, I was talking about how um, I considered that, I guess, housing was a much more important topic, and uh, this and Georgism ties into that. This, it seems that Georgism is a kind of answer to a lot of issues I hadn't really realized existed. existed. Sounds like we have a convert. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else about harbinger tax? That was the kind of introduction. I can answer any questions you have. I thought it was just a neat idea that I like sharing with people. Yeah, I'm glad that you could give us a rundown on that. That was very uh, illuminating. New fields of understanding that I was not aware of. It's got me scratching my head on why you want to do it, but it's interesting. Yeah, maybe those kind of things could make sense, like you were talking about uh, spherical uh, frictionless economy. But now more and more stuff on the are on the internet, so uh, you, it could actually be possible to uh, to have taxes on virtual things. Somewhere. Yeah, I suppose it'd be a nice way to get around patent trolling, wouldn't it? For people who sit on IPs. I haven't thought about that aspect, but that could be it. Like all the intellectual property subject to uh, harbinger taxes. Yeah, it's definitely a system that only works in the information age. I can't begin to imagine how you would implement it in the 1800s. Yeah, we didn't even get into how difficult uh, surveying has been and how much of a historical problem it has caused. Uh, Because there needs to be, at least from the standpoint of the United States, there needs to be an uninterrupted lineage of uh, title records. Who owned what, at what point, and what did they convey it under what uh, premises? And if you go for far enough, a lot of plotting uh, information has been the old oak tree next to the rock next to the creek formed the property line. And it wasn't until much later that we had better surveying tools that could deli- properly, more accurately delineate limits of uh, of the property. Okay, I say let's wrap it up. Any parting thoughts? All right, thank you all. Thank you all. Yeah, thank you for having us. All right, that was fun. Fun fact, during this conversation, I was reinstalling Windows on my computer. (laughs) Good job. Yes. (laughs) Got home. Blue screen.
I haven't seen a blue screen in so long. I had the stick for Windows 10. I was running Windows 7. I was like, well, I guess it's time to update. I just imagine that there could be some outrage if Microsoft ever switched to a blue uh, to a red screen. Red Because <laughs> now it's a dog whistle. Oh, right. <laughs> All right, I'm signing off. Bye.